Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Representative Tim Burchett says we're not going to fix it in reference to school shootings. But of course, he homeschools his kid. We have a fascinating show today. Crooked media editor-in-chief Brian Boitler stops by to talk about the dangers of Trump's violent rhetoric. Then we'll talk to the Economic Hardship Reporting Project's Alyssa Court, who will tell us about her new book, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. But first, we have the Washington Post columnist, the one, the only, Dana Milbank. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Dana Milbank. Molly, it's always a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, I'm interrupting you from watching a certain committee hearing. That's the kind of hearing that I watch and I want to throw stuff at the wall. Tell us what committee hearing you were just watching on C-SPAN. There is just so many good committee (laughs) hearings going on all the time. I I was like toggling back and forth among six of them um, this morning. And now this afternoon, we're going to hear from a subcommittee of uh, James Comer's House Oversight Committee. And they are talking about how the progressivism, basically the wokeness of the uh, military, is preventing readiness of our troops. I love it as a topic of a hearing, but the fact that they're doing it on the same day that over in the Senate, Tommy Tuberville actually is compromising the readiness of our military by refusing to approve any of the military promotions so everybody's actually stuck in place and is in fact not ready. Yeah, you've hit on many subjects I want to talk about, but the first is James Comer. I feel like he's new this season of 
our Republican house fuckery. He is. They brought him up from AAA, but I, I'm not yes. sure he can hit these pitches. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. So he's a fascinating character because like a Louis Gomer, you look at that guy and you go like, this guy's an idiot. Right. He's got crazy eyes. Yeah. Yeah. He's got crazy eyes. He sometimes loses a tooth during a conversation, which, by the way, you know, I've had many dental struggles, so I'm hardly casting aspersions here or asparagus. Casting aspersions on his asparagus. I, I knew right. that's where you were going. <laughs> exactly. This is a real deep cut for people. But Comer looks normal. But then when you get him going, he sounds... Yeah, the best I can tell on Comer is he probably is or was normal, and then he became <laughs> chairman of this committee. I mean, it's not terribly unlike the McCarthy thing. It's like you have right. a choice. You can be normal or you can have a job. <laughs> right. And if you want to keep your job, you got to at least sound crazy. And of course, if you right. if you sound crazy long enough, well, event, you know, it's just cognitive dissonance. You just become crazy. You have to believe it right? because you can't keep saying it. It's got a long history of people in this position going back to Dan Burt shooting watermelons and Daryl Issa was in this job and Trey Gowdy that Benghazi came out of uh, out of this committee <laughs> he just doesn't seem ready for prime time you know like just a couple of weeks ago he was going after Bo Biden who of course isn't alive to defend himself he keeps contradicting himself on the Hunter Biden stuff yeah he just doesn't seem like he's he's ready for prime time and when he goes on Fox News he seems to operate as if Nobody's going to hear what he said outside of the Fox News echo chamber. And he's constantly getting in trouble for those things because he's saying things that are not backed up by reality. One of the incredible things uh, that I'm thinking about is on the Sunday shows, Jake Tapper interviewed him. He was so hot to defend Trump that he couldn't figure out what he was defending Trump from. So Tapper said, well, do you think business crimes are not really crimes? And he was like, no, election crimes aren't really crimes. You know, it was <laughs> like, and, and, he, and Tapper was like, but the New York state crime would be a business crime. Oh, oh, yes. You know, I feel like we haven't spent enough of this news cycle talking about Republicans falling all over themselves to defend Donald Trump when Donald Trump has still yet to be actually indicted. Whatever you may think of Donald Trump, and I know you're a big fan. <laughs> That's right, a big fan. I, he's brilliant <laughs> at this sort of thing. I mean, you know, I, I wrote about it, it, it before he had a serious run for the presidency. He would flirt with it each time. And I, I noted he, he would do it often, or at least more than once, when The Apprentice was up for renewal. Then he'd start teasing <laughs> right. a presidential run. Right. And at one, one, at one of these times, I don't know whether, you know, 2010 or something like that, I got a uh, I wish I had kept it. I got a, a, a clip out of the article I'd written observing that from Donald Trump uh, in which he circled that sentence and said, good point. Uh, <laughs> so he, was, he was happy to be uh, manipulating uh, NBC or whatever it was. But he, now he's doing the same thing to the House Republicans. He had no idea that, he, you know, whether or not he was going to be arrested uh, but he just went out and said it because, you know, what does he care? And, you know, the, the fools... Uh, they fell for it completely. Uh, it, you know, so it doesn't matter if he's uh, indicted now or if he's not indicted or if he's indicted in Georgia or if he's indicted in New York. He's back on top. Yeah. He's all everybody's talking about. He's stealing all the oxygen in the room. They are tripping over themselves to interfere in the American justice system. 
Right. Weaponize the federal government. And even, you know, in, in some of the most absurd cases, they're even actually defending his behavior with uh, with Stormy Daniels. Well, the, the crimes or or just the tawdry thing that started it. You know, do you really want to really want to be <laughs> defending him on? Yeah. That, like Tucker Carlson said, eh, yeah, come on, everybody pays hush money. Right. I mean, who among us? <laughs> the moment I thought was the sort of most magnificent moment of this whole experience was when Republicans were furious with DeSantis for not defending Trump. Yeah. I mean, that shows, you know, how it was so brilliant. It looked like Pence was successfully getting or at least trying to get some distance on Trump. It looked like DeSantis was cutting him down quite nicely. And now everybody's back on their heels, either defending him or being quiet because he's the only game in town again. And that's why many people go through this, you know, Trump's finished now. He's really, yeah. he's really done. <laughs> and, you know, I admit it had looked that way for a little while, but just because every time in the past he's come roaring back. I mean, I was down at, you know, his for his full start of a presidential announcement in Mar-a-Lago, and it really felt like the guy was done. But He's Donald Trump. He'll destroy everything around him, but he's going to come crawling out of that mushroom cloud. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing that I'm so struck by is it feels like, you know, if he were a normal candidate, I mean, if he cared about the Republican Party more than he cared about his own bottom line, then perhaps. But that has never been the case. Why would we expect it to start now? The whole notion for any anybody else and forget about in politics, but in the world, by and large, getting indicted is a bad thing. Like you, right. would, you would put that in <laughs> yes, the negative in the negative That's column right. when you're listing positives and negatives. <laughs> All things being equal, you'd rather not be uh, indicted. But this is the thing that I think is sort of mind blowing: is that there has been up until Donald Trump a certain honor among thieves, and by thieves I mean politicians. That I mean, there was a certain you know, if you lost, you would admit it, you wouldn't lie. You know what I mean? Like you might lie about whether or not you had a mistress, but you wouldn't lie about whether or not you'd lost the election. Right. Things that were, you would lie about things that weren't demonstrably false that, you know, you could right. sort of shade it or people might not know the truth. But uh, no, this is a, uh, you know, I mean, there's the there's the absence of shame, but there's also the absence uh, of fact. You know, as we've discussed before, Trump didn't invent that. It had gotten a, a whole lot more brazen going back to uh death panels. Yeah, there was something about that war in Iraq. And then, of course, you know, the birther thing. It had gotten increasingly brazen. But now it's, you know, it's it's sort of stuff that can be disproven in real time. And the whole notion is that the people doing the disproving, the people who are actually pointing out that it's false are the ones who have an agenda. So that was the genius here. Right. I mean, it's like calling black people racist, right? Yeah, no, right. It's the, it's the proverbial uh, uh, jujitsu. Um, and I mean, it, the, the, the ruinous consequences, of course, are you now have the chairman of the House Administration Committee, the House Oversight and the House <laughs> Judiciary Committee casting doubt on the justice system in America. Just as they made people believe that the elections are are rigged, they're making people believe that the justice uh, system is rigged. In fact, one of the many hearings I was listening to this morning, another effort this way by the House <laughs> Administration Committee to say that our elections are all screwed up. This time they're going after a Republican county, Luzerne <laughs> County in in Pennsylvania. But it doesn't matter, you know, just sow doubts and say. 
the systems that you believed in are failing you and everybody's lying to you. Right. This sort of works until it doesn't, right? Well, I'm still waiting for that point. Many points, it, it seemed Trump had uh, jumped the shark. It keeps succeeding uh, in the end. So, I, you know, I agree. It, it, theoretically, there is a point at which uh, even uh, you know, the 30% or whatever of America that sort of diehard MAGA will say, okay, that's too much. I can't. <laughs> I can't follow you there, but I haven't seen it yet. Right. I continue to believe that they're in a situation where the only person who who can win the primary is Trump and the only person who can guaranteed to lose the general is Trump. It certainly seems that way to me. And, you know, as the guy who had to, you know, physically eat a a column... Wait, which column was that? Well, in 2016, I I said Republicans are better than this. They're not going to nominate Donald Trump. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's what you get for thinking they were better than that. Yeah, I had a local chef, uh, Victor Albisu. He came into the post. (laughs) I got the food critic, Tom Sietzema. We had an entire spread of newspaper. They made newspaper filtered coffee. They made newspaper uh, filet of fish. Oh, tacos. It was, yeah. it was and, and Trump wine to right. wash it all down. It was, it was a great culinary experience. That's amazing. But yeah. So but what were you saying? I'm not going to make the mistake again of saying Trump can't win or Trump can win because who the hell knows? What I do know is it, it, anybody out there is I, I doubt that after last week, anybody is still saying it. But anybody who's saying that, that Trump can't be back on top again and that he couldn't win the presidency again. They're just making it up because uh, right. as we've seen it can happen. You know, in the long run, the politics he's practicing are ruinous to his party and to the country, more importantly. But uh, uh, in the short term, I don't I don't doubt that it can still work. I mean, do you think like the thing I always think about is this idea that like you can't make a Faustian bargain and then like have people just go back to normal? There has to be some kind of reckoning. Where is the reckoning? We keep thinking, well, all right, they saw what all these, you know, nutters meant that the Republicans didn't win the Senate. They very narrowly won the House. When, <laughs> with George Santos. Yeah, right, right. With George Santos. And, you know, originally they were expecting a 60 seat majority and wind up with five and said, you'd think the reckoning would come after uh, losing the 2020 election, losing, I think it's eight of nine uh, pres- of the last presidential election popular vote, you'd think it would come after the January 6th insurrection. There's a reckoning for like a week and then everybody just forgets that there was this reckoning and we're (laughs) right back in the same place. So I don't necessarily believe that there is a reckoning for this. I don't think there. I don't I think being a a MAGA Republican means never having to say you're sorry. I think eventually they decide they're sick of losing. The problem for them, and again, this is not a problem for me because I think they did this themselves, is that ultimately they are being ruled by their base. So once the sort of the powers that be in the Republican Party decide they are sick of losing, they're going to have to say goodbye to the base that has delivered them. You know, I mean, there's no way to not alienate the base. I mean, that's all of this is about not alienating that sort of despicable group that no Republican had ever dared. I mean, you know, that they had quietly tried to appeal quietly to the sort of deplorables. And then, you know, the very, very small group of real people that are beyond the pale. And I do think that now they would have to reject that group by saying they don't believe in these kind of very base things. 
Right. And how would you do that? Who would you, you know, because of course we, we saw through the, the, the Fox News texts coming out from the Dominion suit that that's their base. Right. They're out there worrying that if they don't toe the extremist line, that if they don't perpetuate the big lie, that they're going to lose their people to uh, Newsmax or somebody else. And they will. Right. How does an elected official, a McCarthy, a Comer, disown that base without the implosion of the party? There's nothing left if they were to do that. So that's why I don't know. I don't see how that reckoning comes about other than constant drubbings, which will happen eventually. Just not it just not not necessarily next year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's ultimately their big problem. But oh, well, they did it to themselves. I mean, and they really did do it to themselves. I mean, just in a spectacular fashion. So they're sort of in it. And I think that this what we're seeing in this Republican House is a kind of, you know, the Trumpism is this sort of you have a leader who has a cult of personality, but you have no governing principles except chaos. I mean, that's what we're seeing in the House. Chaos. Yes. I, w- I was watching an appropriations hearing where they're talking about cybersecurity. Suddenly we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion and Hunter Biden. <laughs> That's suddenly <laughs> the topic here. They are having another committee. I think it's the Energy and Commerce Committee is having another hearing on censorship at Twitter. This is after the Oversight Committee had a disaster of a hearing on it. It's after Jim Jordan's Weaponization Committee. And, uh, and now they're actually having some of the same witnesses back again to chew over it again at Energy and Commerce. It's, uh, you know, it's sort of it's like a fever dream of Hunter Biden, woke politics, equity, <laughs> diversity and inclusion. <laughs> it's just an endless repeat here. And then, you know, in the background, you have, you know, very serious things like, oh, guys, we're about to default on the federal debt. And you literally had the, the House Republican caucus leaders out one time. And then on a split screen, you had the House Freedom Caucus this morning. And they're saying entirely different things about what needs to, to happen with the debt limit. I guess the only thing that you can agree on is that Hunter Biden's laptop just keeps saying it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, one last question for you. It seems like this Dominion suit, from what I'm seeing, you know, now they want these Fox personalities to testify. I mean, I don't know if you saw the polling last week that Fox watchers are aware of what's happening. I mean, it does seem like Dominion is a company with nothing left to lose. Their whole brand has been savaged. You see it at the local level at election board meetings and then local testimony. So that's why you file a defamation suit, because it's been ruinous to your character. I mean, I think a lot of smart people say it's, you know, it's really hard to prevail in these kinds of lawsuits, but give them credit for doing an enormous public service because maybe it is filtering to Fox Fears to some extent, but the rest of the world is seeing what a canard this whole thing is. That's just the, the knowingly feeding your audience lies over and over again, even though you know it's wrong, even though the, the people in the, in the news division of your own organization are fighting you. Yeah, it's crazy. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Uh, it was a delight. Thank you, Molly. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, 
HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's almost here. The NYX anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Brian Boitler is the editor-in-chief of Crooked Media. Welcome to Fast Politics, Brian. Thank you for having me on. We're delighted. Our first topic of conversation must be Meatball Ron. <laughs> Here we are in a situation where we have this Republican that all the kind of smart Republicans have decided is their candidate, right? He may lack Mm -hmm. uh, charisma, but they don't care. And then we have the probably likely Republican candidate who is going to eat him. Is that fair? I think so. I mean, I think that you see in a lot of um, the recent coverage of this sort of shadow campaign, the problems that DeSantis is going to have, which are really familiar because all of the 2016 
primary candidates who tried to take on Trump had the same problem and that Donald Trump doesn't have this particular problem. And, you know, it's one of the only admirable things about Donald Trump, or at least to me, it's not in how he does it, but in that he's willing to do it, is that when he identifies an opponent, even if it's a Republican opponent, and he wants to beat him, he just screams to the high heavens right. that that person is beyond redemption, just terrible in all kinds of ways, right? And so when he puts out statements about DeSantis, they're withering. <laughs> On the other hand, when DeSantis punches at Donald Trump, you'll get the New York Post talking about how the gloves are finally coming off. But when you read the actual comments, it's so tame and oblique, and he's just unwilling to confront Donald Trump directly or say anything really very critical about him. And it's hard to see how that's going to lead him to the nomination unless like Donald Trump gets imprisoned or something. I even think Donald Trump running from prison could probably still beat Ron DeSantis. I don't want to say this again because the last time I said this, I got in trouble with actual members of the Dukakis family. And look, there are a lot of great things about Dukakis, but he was not a brilliant political strategist. And he also had a very sort of slightly Ron desantis look. There's a line from, from the tank image right. of Dukakis to John Kerry saying, reporting for duty and saluting at the 2004 convention to meet Ron, pretend flying in a plane and, and, and acting like he's Top Gun Maverick. It's all one piece, right? And it's really corny and people think think that people like that are dorks and don't like them. Right. And I mean, I think also like there's a real disconnect here between what Americans have since in my incredibly long lifetime, because I'm incredibly old, have always elected charismatic leaders, often to their detriment, right? I mean, look, W, how many times do I remember people being like, you can't elect this guy? With the exception of W's dad, I think largely Republicans, Democrats, everyone has elected people they find charismatic. I think that's right. I mean, I think that at least in my also too long of a lifetime. Every presidential election has been won by the more charismatic of the two candidates. And I, I feel like every time I end up in a conversation about this, some part of the electorate gets upset because they liked the losing candidate. And in their mind, there was some element, of, you know, it's not like Hillary Clinton lacks all charm. In certain contexts, she's very charming. She doesn't attract cameras the way Donald Trump does, obviously, right? And I think it's the, the same thing was true between Gore and Bush. And the same thing was true between the first Bush and Clinton. And if it weren't for the fact that Donald Trump had gotten hundreds of thousands of Americans killed and sank the economy in his last year in office, I think Joe Biden would have had a hard time beating him for the same reason. I mean, even though Joe Biden has a sort of like, I grew up in the 1950s, like, oh, shucks, I'm going to beat up the bullies persona. He, he doesn't command the cameras the way Trump does. And I, I think absent those sort of extraordinary circumstances, he might have lost too. And, you know, it's not like he won by a huge landslide either. I mean, the only reason this is relevant is that it looks like they're heading towards a rematch. But I think with Biden, there was a sense that they found the kind of least, you know, they found a Democrat who could be palatable to a wide range of Republicans, right? So I've been on television panels where people, where conservatives have said Joe Biden is a socialist, but they get laughed off the panel because the guy is like the most centrist guy on the entire face of the earth. So, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, he's a white guy. I mean, he reads like old white guy, which, you know, I think to a certain, I mean, there was a certain sense. And again, 
who knows if this is real or if this was imagined in the mind of many of Democrats, including myself, was this sense that like America was not ready to elect a woman. They really, you know, for whatever reason, they needed an old white guy and we found them an old white guy. Biden has a couple of assets and you alluded to one of them, I think, I mean, on top of being an old white guy. DeSantis said something really strange the other day or wrote something really strange where he said, geographically, I'm from Tallahassee, but in yeah, spirit, yeah, was I, I, I come from the Midwest, I come from the Ohio, Pennsylvania <laughs> part of it. You know what I mean? Purple states that I need to win. Yeah, exactly. And the, and, the, and the thing is that Joe Biden actually does, right? Like that's his actual heritage. And then the other thing he's got going for him is, this is Biden I'm talking about again, is that something like 55 to 60% of the country just absolutely despise Donald Trump. Right. Like they are... I mean, that faction has been there since about 2015 and everything about his presidency just intensified that distaste, that antipathy. And it's really hard for somebody who has to work with a maximum of 40 or 45 percent of the electorate to win an election nationally, even with the Electoral College. It, it can be done. And that's why it's a it's still a scary situation. But he's so toxic for so many reasons that even Joe Biden you know, with some of the uh, the challenges he will have going into re-election, he'll, he'll be an incumbent running against somebody who's widely, widely loathed in the country. And that's our hope. Yeah, exactly. But it is a totally fascinating phenomenon. So first, let's talk about this. And I wrote about this, this I'm going to get a jailed and perp walked news cycle that has yet to materialize. <laughs> right. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> Look, I know there were machinations from Alvin Bragg's office and he did go on television and say, but ultimately that was it. Right. I mean, largely and even like two hours after Trump went on the ironically named Truth Social, his his spokesman was like, he's not really going on anything. Yeah. I mean, I don't I still don't know what happened and I'm not sure we ever will. There are definitely ways that Donald Trump could have gotten wind of a looming indictment, even if he got the date wrong, right? Like one thing that they did that was suspicious to me is they immediately started pinning the quote unquote news that he was going to be indicted to an illegal leak from the grand jury. And just knowing the way that faction operates is that when they say something like that, they're projecting. And so there could be a grand juror who got word to them that an indictment is indeed coming. It could have been communication between the prosecutor's office and Trump's legal team to tell him to be prepared for for this in the coming several days or something like that. And then in the game of operator, Trump turned it into Tuesday, I'm going to get arrested. It hasn't happened and maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, we're going to be left to wonder, unless Alvin Bragg speaks up and explains himself, whether Trump successfully intimidated his way out of an indictment. Because ever since he said that, he's been essentially trying to incite the same kind of violence we saw on January 6, 2021 against Alvin Bragg and the Manhattan prosecutor's office. So there have been death threats and, you know, a fake anthrax scare or some sort of poison powder scare. They've had to, you know, erect security fencing around it. Trump has threatened blood in the streets if uh, if he's indicted. And he then held a rally in Waco, Texas, which is sort of like waving red flag in front of the bull of militia type Trump supporters who would happily take up arms to defend him if they could. There's this ridiculous aspect to it, like there always is with Trump, just camp and just bullshit. <laughs> and we can kind of laugh about it and misspellings in his truth social 
pseudo tweets. And then there's this like undercurrent of real menace. And it's a little bit dispiriting that I think that we're treating it as all kind of like, oh, let's roll our eyes at Donald Trump for being a, a clown again, instead of sort of preparing for the kind of public resistance push that you see happening like in Israel right now, right, right, right. when there's like a frontal direct threat to rule of law in other countries, there's an immediate backlash. And I think that we're so desensitized to Trump behaving this way that we no longer interpret it as a literal direct threat to our ability as a people to hold corrupt public officials accountable for anything. It's a real problem. The one thing I will push back on here, and I think you're certainly right, is that Trump is a real threat to democracy, is that I truly believe Ron DeSantis is a bigger threat to democracy. I mean, look, the Republican Party is not a party of democracy anymore. We had somebody on the podcast recently who talked about going to a Federalist Society event where the Federalist Society is not completely sold on democracy anymore. You know, you're seeing this again and again. Republican electeds, they want they they want public schools gone. They want they want government gone. This world that we've been in all this time of democracy and government, they've kind of turned against it. So in my mind, the only good news here is that they're going to nominate Trump because I think that DeSantis is a much scarier candidate. I go back and forth. I mean, I, I'm not sure I agree or know who'd be worse. DeSantis is competent in a way that Trump is absolutely not. <laughs> well, so what what is true is that Donald Trump, I don't think is any more philosophically supportive of or opposed to democracy than he is anything else, right? Whatever the principle is, as soon as it stands in the way of his power and his wealth, it's got to go. Right. And in, for the last seven years, that principle has been democratic forces that don't want him to be in charge or that if he is in charge, are going to push back on the kinds of things he wants to do. Ron DeSantis, if you read his first book, he is philosophically opposed to democracy the way a lot of right-wing libertarians are in that he thinks that when people have the power to elect representatives and those representatives have the power through bare majorities to pass laws and to govern, that there's going to be too much distribution of wealth down the income scale. And that's a huge injustice. And so we need to have less democracy to prevent that from happening. And you can see in the way he, he governs Florida that when he has power and consolidated power with a loyal legislature, he can backslide democracy really fast. Yeah. So isn't that worse? On the one hand, if you if you just look at like what Trump and, and DeSantis did around elections or whatever, Donald Trump ran this sort of clown judicial farce trying to get an election overturned. Ron DeSantis actually put citizens who live in Florida in jail for voting when the law was unclear. They were told they were allowed to vote and he set up a whole unit to go hunt them down and turn them into scapegoats. I don't think Trump ever did that. On the other hand, Trump did jail and separate families at the border, even though in the borders, like a Yeah, but DeSantis would have done that, too. I mean, bad to immigrants is the brand. I think DeSantis is scarier to the extent that he's scary. It's that he's just less easily distracted. He he speaks the language of official republicanism, so they will do what he wants. And you could imagine him if he were to come into power with a trifecta of being worse than Trump. But Trump just makes people crueler. He makes people nasty in the in a way that has these sort of unintended and hard to define consequences. Right. Like American society is a meaner place now than it was in 2015. And I don't know if DeSantis has the power to galvanize people in that way. Right. I mean, he's maybe not as popular. I would say the one thing that really strikes me, you know, I've had Sarah Longwell on this podcast and she made the argument that by reelecting Trump, that that act is so incredibly 
I want to say, perverse and such an affront to democracy that by doing that, you have actually lessened the power of the American government and you have you stuck your finger in the eye of you know, the American system. And I think that that percentage of the base that has taken over the party doesn't necessarily think about the consequences of democracy. They just like their guy. So the, here is a word, enervating. I think that if Donald Trump were to win again, particularly if he were to win again without a popular vote majority, there would not be a second resistance movement like we saw take shape in early 2017 or late 2016, early 2017. Just because I, I I think that once the shock of it wore off, the fact that this that we would be living through a repeat, that people could do everything right in the face of a threat to civic life in America like Donald Trump, beat him twice in the popular vote, only for him to get elected twice. I guess he beat him three times in the popular vote, but still he got elected twice. That people would feel like uh, rallying in the streets and striking and using whatever power they have um, as a collected mass just wasn't worth it. It didn't wouldn't do anything. And I'd sort of worry about what like reconstituted Republican majority could get away with in a climate where people who have been exhausting themselves for the last seven years trying to push back on authoritarianism, authoritarianism in the U.S. just kind of said uh, enough. Like we tried and and the system is just set up for us to fail. Yeah, I don't think so. I think people would be furious. Oh, I agree they'd be furious. I just don't know that if that we'd see like a, a mass repeat of, you know, and everyone was sort of taken by surprise. I mean, who knows? And hopefully we'll never get there. But I do yeah. think, I mean, we are all hostage to this Republican Party's base, which is, it's funny because it's like from someone who came from such a liberal family and, you know, I had this communist grandfather who would always say like, you know, it's the Koch brothers who are cooking the books and cooking the elections and they're, you know, the Bushes and the Koch brothers and they are out of power in a certain way. It's true. Look, I'd love to be wrong that there's a chance that Trump becomes president again. If I'm not wrong about that, I'd love to be wrong that he would not be met with such fierce pushback as he was when he won the first time. As you said, hopefully we'll never live to see either of those things. But I do worry. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of people out there watching Trump not get charged with crimes he committed around the election, stealing classified documents. He got away with shaking down Ukraine. He got away with cooperating with Russia in the 2016 election. And the one thing he didn't get away with was stealing the election, but he tried and he's not being charged for that either. And so it's just like, what what good is showing up in the street and like making our opposition to what he's up to heard when at the end of the day, it doesn't actually work? Thank you, Brian. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Alyssa Court is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Welcome to Fast Politics, Alyssa Court. Oh, thank you very much, Molly. I want to call you Malls. You can call me whatever you want. Alyssa okay. and I are longtime friends. So I want to talk to you. First, tell us what the name of it. I don't want to butcher the name. This is my first goal. Do no evil to the English language. <laughs> so explain to us what your organization is called and what it does. Okay, so it's called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And for a while I was like, we need to call this, you know, the opportunity writing world or some, you know, incredibly optimistic 
neoliberal name, but I actually think it's good that it's Truth in Advertising, Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It's exactly what we do. It's a media nonprofit. More than a third of our contributors are financially struggling. And it was created by Barbara Ehrenreich, the late, great Barbara Ehrenreich. Just explain this a little bit. The idea was to like get reporting from about economic hardship from people who are actually experiencing economic hardship. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I, some of it is about that uh, and right. by people who worked as, you know, domestic workers and adjuncts and factory workers and experienced homelessness, right? So the, the, that's right. maybe 37% or so of our contributors. And then the rest are sort of mid-listers, I say, like people who would otherwise probably be unable to afford to write long form journalism about inequality. But other than that, they're, you know, they've got a sort of middle class journalism, independent journalism practice going, right? That's like the majority of the people who write for us. And they also take photos and they make films and do illustration. So I want to ask you a little bit about Barbara Ehrenreich. If you just want to say like a minute or two about Barbara Ehrenreich, she just died. She was pretty much one of the great writers on this topic. Would you just like give us like a two second for those of us who are not completely read in on the history of Barbara Ehrenreich, a little bit about her legacy? Yeah. So Barbara Ehrenreich wrote 21 books. She was one of the first people to write about midwives and witches. She wrote about cancer culture and the way that women's illness is commercialized. And she wrote about poverty and labor. And that's what she's most famous for. But she was really a wild, wonderful mind and reporter and social critic. And I was very close to her. So I was very sad when she she died. And, and we'd worked together very closely for almost a decade. On this project, which is a sort of like, if you think of it like the Marshall Project does for the penal system, the prison system, what this hardship project does for poverty. I think that's fair, right? Yeah, completely. Or inequality. because Yeah, inequality. The reason I make that distinction is I think we need to talk about financial struggle, like up and down the gradient. I mean, not all the way up. (laughs) (laughs) Not all the way up. But you know, the 99% existed for a reason, right? I mean, there are people who are financially struggling who are making $40,000 in American cities, right? Right, right, right. No, I think that's a really good point. So now I want to talk to you about the book, which is called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. A little bit counterintuitive, right? Yeah, because I see the American Dream, first of all, I see it as something that's different than what is now understood to be the American Dream. When it was coined in 1931, it meant something more capacious. It meant something more collective, the original definition of it. And it's become over time, and I do this with many different terms that have to do with being self-made or self-actualized in this country. It's become bastardized. Its meaning has been, in a sense, lost. And it's just all about financial success and gain and uh, doing it all on our own. So I'm trying to take that back, take the collective meaning of things like the American dream back. So... uh Explain to me a little bit about what the lie of the American dream is. Right. Well, the American dream is you're going to be able to make it just out of hard work on your own, no matter what strata you were born to. And all you have to do is, you know, nowadays it's hustle or rise and grind and you'll thrive and prosper. And it's wrong on so many levels. It's wrong in terms of, you know, what people know about mobility and what it takes to survive in terms of 
medical care and you know getting educated. And it also it's wrong in terms of the fact that we have to do it alone because everything, as I write in the book, is everyone and everything is dependent on something and someone else. And that's one of the great ways that the American dream has been distorted, that somehow we're supposed to do this either on our own or just with our little families without help. I mean, in some ways, it's not unlike, and again, this has been widely made fun of, but it's true. I want to bring it up because I think it's really, really true. You know, Hillary Clinton talking about how you it's hard to raise a child alone. Yeah, it takes a village. I was trying with this book, honestly, to find language that was less corny. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I mean it takes a village. You're like, oh, gosh, it's also appropriative. It's, it didn't age well as a phrase, but I think the meaning of it aged well. I mean, I think the meaning is more true than ever. It takes a village. You know, we're, in the pandemic, we saw that on a grand scale, right? Yeah. I mean, that was my thinking is like the lie of this is this idea that a lot of people are self-made when, in fact, they come from wealthy families or not wealthy families, but families that were very upper middle class and were basically wealthy. They came from families where parents were able or grandparents were able to give them money to start their businesses. I mean, so many of these stories are like with a mere $10,000 loan, I was able to, you know, and if you think about things like that statistic where you see that the average black family has so much less money on hand than the average white family. I mean, you see the sort of vestiges of slavery in the economy continuing. Yeah, I mean, fewer than half of American adults, like something like 47 percent, say they have enough emergency funds to cover three months of expenses. And that this was in 2020. And the mobility numbers, the famous study is that, you know, you had a 92 percent chance if you're born in the 40s of sort of meeting or exceeding your parents' earnings and and, stat- and stature. And if you're born in the 80s, you had a 50 percent chance. So just sheer mobility, you know, across has gone down. I would love you to just talk a little bit about that more, because I think that's the largest complaint that we see, that I certainly see, is this idea that you can't move in this world anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, intergenerational mobility is so much greater now in countries that we would have expected there to be more limited mobility. Like we think of America, again, this is part of the American dream as a place where you can change where you're born, but that doesn't turn out to be the case in many instances. And I, I mean, part of what I try to do in this book is also talk to people for whom that was true, because I think it's really important for me. It's like real people, right? Like what are, what's going on? What do they want to be and what has held them back? And tell us like what their budget is, you know, what's their day like. And that to me was, it's always helpful to kind of wrap your arms around what ordinary people's experiences. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I talked to someone who um, had to use a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for, he had renal failure. He was on dialysis. Right. And that's a very common story. People needing to make, to raise money for their their medical bills, right? Yeah, it's the, one of the largest sectors of GoFundMe. I mean, it's like a GoFundMe has become a social service provider, right. which is totally nuts. This guy did this, and so he could kind of pay for Ubers and stuff to get or ambulance to get to the, you know, facility. And also to, like, not only do his medical care, but fix his car and pay for help pay for the small apartment he and his mother share. And he's on a disability. I also talked to another person who had GoFundMe to raise money for school lunches because extremely poor 
kids were able to get school lunches without this thing called lunch shaming. I don't know if you've heard about this, where they stamp something on the kids' hands if their bills are unpaid. Oh, Jesus. But in this community, these were working class people. So they made just, the parents made just a little too much for the school lunches to be fully subsidized. And so this lunch shaming was happening. And this woman this is in Montana had to create a whole GoFundMe to pay for school lunches in her, in her district. But, you know, I hope I, it isn't just depressing, this book, uh, Bootstrapped. It's, it's also filled with stories about people who do overcome, but they almost always overcome through working with others. Like it's not right. just going to be this bootstrapping myth that, that's getting them by. So that that's sort of the point. What would you say if you were to say that the sort of secret is here? Of like, if you were to tell us what the lie was, the lie of the American dream, what is it? Well, some of it is in the very origins of the the people who wrote some of the great texts of the American dream. And I'm thinking here of Horatio Alger. Yeah, you've heard the phrase Horatio Alger story, right? Yeah. Explain to us what that is and who that is and how he's relevant. Yeah. So Horatio Alger story, I mean, look, Trump talked about be, his father having a Horatio Alger story. Like, no, <laughs> but, he's <still> like, Whatever. <laughs> but Michael Moore said the Horatio Alger story was like the drug of our of our country. You know, people use it casually all the time. But when I read the books, I saw that the lie there was, first of all, the Horatio Alger story was always about they were novels. They were really, really bad novels. He wrote over 100 of them, wildly popular. And they always have this like handsome, very young man, like teenager, selling, peddling ties or hats or like kind of like a stock boy. And then he always meets a, a rich old man. And that is the Horatio Alger story. This rich old man helps him. So basically, <laughs> it's this totally homosocial Right. Classic story. Like it's something out of a Victorian novel, except it would be a marriage, right? Or like a rich right. guy marries. Yeah. Right, but right. Because it, they can't be honest about the way power works with like an old man who's probably, uh, whatever, quite taken with these teenagers, right? These male teenagers. Instead, it becomes a story of hard work. Pluck and luck was the phrase they used. And so it's like the Horatio Alger story itself was a lie. And then Horatio Alger was a pedophile. And so, right. you know, this Horatio Alger prize was something that Clarence Thomas was into the Horatio Alger Society. Reagan was into it. I mean, and I was like, do they know that Horatio Alger was a man who was chased out of the church? Well, because a minister for sailing two boys. Wow. Yeah. So the lesson here is if a rich guy is coming to help you, he might have another motive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> is that fair? <laughs> That's a fair assumption. Yeah. So your thesis is that we need to move more towards community and less towards a strange rich guy who gives you money and then might want something in return. Yes, exactly. A strange rich guy who gives you money or takes up your your time. We've, we've seen in the last uh, 10 years in particular where that leads us. How do we as a culture start to get healthier? It's funny. A lot of books, right, Molly, have like a chapter at the end where you're like, this is my solutions chapter. This is right. I am fell in love with these solutions and they became the sort of meat of the book. And some of them are kind of personal, like things we can do within ourselves and in our lives. Some of them are who we vote for and who we're bringing in as political leaders. And some of them are like mutual aid and workers cooperatives and kind of, I guess, spinachy um, solutions, but they're real. You know, there are things that are happening now that are on the rise. Something called participatory budgeting, where people in cities are now increasingly citizens increasingly talking about how their local city budgets are spent. And you can do this in your, if you're in New York, if you're in Seattle, you can join right. this thing. It's called PB. And, you know, there's a, I found a bunch of 
maybe five more of these kind of things. But the personal part of it was something that I had started trying to do almost like a mantra, which is saying, who helped me? Who made me who I am? What forces have gone into everything, even this book, you know, and but in my life, like what is helping me? Instead of being like grateful in this kind of hashtag grateful way that doesn't seem to really go anywhere, it can be kind of deeply individualistic too. I feel like attributing is more of an important thing to do in one's life. Right. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I know for me, I got sober when I was 19. And one of the things that I saw in my own life was that you really can't get sober without community, right? Like I got sober in a 12-step program, which I continue to be in today, an anonymous program, but we won't worry about that. I think that there really is a sense that a lot of the community that saves us is is not part of the American ideology. Absolutely. I mean, there is, of course, this alternative American story that does stress community. And I mean, some of it's related to the church, but some of it's thing and like bar raising and, you know, that kind of thing. But some of it is the history of mutual aid, which you know what mutual aids are, right? Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. So mutual aids, especially during the pandemic, became really popular. You, If you live in a city, you may have seen, you know, or anywhere, you may have seen signs or like, oh, come, you know, bring groceries to your elderly neighbor, you know, and right, people right, would just right. do that. And and just many sprouted up like immediately after the, the lockdown started. And I looked into a few and hung out with some of the people who work in the local one and in my neighborhood. And so that mutual aid, though, that structure where people help each other, it's not a charity because maybe it is a little like your 12-step program. You're, each person's helping each other, even though it may go one way mostly where the elderly neighbors are the ones mostly being helped. Supposedly, right, the person who's bringing that food and those you know, medications or whatever can get that themselves, too, if they need it. So that rearranges charity. So it's not just like top down where you have some, you know, noble person, benefactor, you know, right. doling out uh, soup. But you have people really on the ground helping each other. And it turned out when I looked into this, mutual aids were popular in the 19th century, but it was all almost all in the black community. And that was a history that I was like, oh, there needs to be a hidden figure about this. <laughs> you know, hidden figures. Seriously. Right. Like, right, right, right. Yeah. This is incredible. There are all over the South and in, even in California. I found that really interesting and inspiring and that this was an alternative American dream that, again, we'd heard too little about. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, that's really interesting. So, Alyssa, if you have one last sort of line, a sort of selling line for the book, tell us why people need to read this book. Well, can I give you two? <laughs> yeah, you can give me 10. Yeah. Uh, well, you can't give me 10, but you can give me two. <laughs> well, one thing that I'm trying to teach people about is the what I call the art of dependence and that it, dependence is something that can be a craft and a skill and an ability and something we should cherish. And we shouldn't just be trying to be independent all the time and muscling through and siloed in our families, but that dependence is actually something to be honored and uh, dependence pride, if you will. And that's kind of the through line of this book, like, let's stop this Horatio Alger story, which was a lie to begin with. And, you know, let's praise the ways that we need help from other people and the ways that we give help. So that's one right, thesis. Right. And then the other is that we have to go into the past to get to the future. And what I mean by that is that we actually had, as I said, this alternative American dream that existed in different forms that existed in these mutual aids and workers co-ops in the Black community in the 19th century and some of the early 20th. And then it existed in 
Homestead Act in 1862, which was the biggest land giveaway in American history. And that is that was a complete kind of moment of beneficence, right, from the state and people were getting things for free, right? People have conveniently forgotten that. The same <laughs> the same people who are saying, oh, you please don't get college debt relief, right? Their families probably benefited from the Homestead Act. Right. The GI Bill, uh, where returning veterans after World War II would get, you know, housing and education. Like, I think we need to look to some of these earlier forms of what the American dream meant and reclaim them. Yeah. So interesting. Thank you so much, Alyssa Cord. Oh, you're so welcome, Maul. <laughs> and now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung Fast. Jesse Cannon. That Rick Scott, he's still fighting to be the thought leader of the Republican Party, which you would think would be an easy race to win, but he still fails at it. A lot of quotes around thought <laughs> and leader. This is not a visual medium, but if there was, if we, you could see me quote tweeting like mad. Yes, let me just say Rick Scott wants the death penalty for school shooting because how better to prevent killing than with more killing? Yes, especially when most of the people who uh, do these shootings have a suicide mission and they want to die during it. Really, is going to help deter it. Right, exactly. Again, Let's never deal with the AR-15s. Let's yeah. never deal with the gun that's used in all the mass shootings. Let's deal with everything else. Stupid. But what we should expect from a politician from the great state of Florida, that's not true. There are some very smart politicians in Florida, like our friend Maxwell Frost, friend of the pod. But dear God, they are not sending their best, that Republican Party. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica. 
a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.